Morse Utopia is a fascinating book. I remember encountering it when I was an undergraduate a long time ago, and uh, I read it, and I read a book uh, by J.H. Hexter, uh, which is specifically discussing it, and I found that book very helpful. It's an old one, but most undergraduates should find it useful. But Morse Utopia is a fascinating uh, counterpoint to, well, the dystopias of this century, like 1984, Brave New World, uh, the optimism about human potential uh, is still there in Utopia, but it's also tempered by a pessimism, uh, a so, sort of Augustinian Christianity, which views human nature as being intrinsically flawed. It's one of the big differences between Plato's Republic and Moore's Utopia. Being a Greek, Plato can't think of anything, of any reason why things shouldn't be perfectible he likes thinking about perfect stuff and he finds perfection uh the most attractive of uh ideas and that's what the form of the good is it's the sum of all perfections now plato in the republic doesn't give us a set of laws by which to judge the actions of uh, the guardians because the idea is that if you give them the right education and they have gymnastics in the muses and they study a lot of math and astronomy and eventually even rhetoric um they'll never do anything bad <laughs> except mistakenly because of their limitations of their knowledge now that sort of optimism about human nature that it's possible to educate the evil out of the world all right uh is greek heroism it's the myth of Prometheus. It's the idea that we're going to be gods. And you can't help but step back and admire the Greek project. The downside of it, as is revealed in the Greek tragedies, is hubris. Yeah, you try and perfect yourself. Good luck. It'd be a much wiser thing to try and improve yourself asymptotically without ever giving yourself the misapprehension that you could actually perfect yourself or anybody else or human nature in general. So uh, Plato's Republic is uh, an exercise in creating perfection, both at the individual and the social level. Thomas More's Utopia, on the other hand, is Christian, particularly Augustinian in its sense that, look, people aren't perfectible. And that that Greek hubris is what causes places like Athens to blow up, right? Uh, the arrogance of those who depend exclusively on reason leads to their own demise. So uh, those sort of ideas eat their own. So in Thomas More's Utopia, there are gonna be laws and there people sometimes are going to break them no matter how good the education is and how excellent the institutions are sooner or later people in Moore's utopia unlike plato's republic are going to break the law and we're going to punish them and rather than the rather stark choice that faced uh thomas moore when he was uh, a judge in the early 1500s uh misdemeanors get 39 lashes felonies of every description get you hanged for the first offense and uh 
Moore said, well, why can't we find some more, how can I put it, uh, humane and benevolent way of handling this? So he invents the idea of bondmen, not because he's trying to endorse slavery, but he's trying to give people who engage in criminal acts, sometimes with mitigating circumstances, a chance not to get killed or beaten, instead to work off their debt insofar as they have one. So Moore is not an advocate of slavery. What he wants is that punishment sh should fit the crime. And the, prob and the point is that in Moore's utopia, because of his presuppositions about human nature, um, he knows there's going to be crime. But the point is to allow, in a Christian sense, reformation, right? And those that behave well and patiently during their uh, time as, you know, doing hard work and being forced to wear gold and stuff, um, those that, are, that show ref reformation, uh, they can be brought back into society. They don't have to be bonded anymore and they can rejoin a family. And what that means is we uh, avoided killing someone unnecessarily. So that's a humane and benevolent thing. Uh, Thomas More is uh, still Aristotelian in the sense that he doesn't think the individual is the minimal unit of society. It's not that people were all stuck together like Siamese twins but rather that uh, the minimal unit of political theory was the family, the reproducing couple, right? Because uh, Robinson Crusoe, assuming he doesn't encounter anybody else, um, his history lasts exactly one generation, right? So humans are naturally social animals. They form communities. The minimal cell of these communities is the family, right? Now, families, start out nuclear perhaps or but they extend both vertically and laterally to people that were your predecessors people that are your children and people that are your kin at the same level so the idea of an extended family would have appealed to aristotle and it certainly appeals to thomas more so everybody has to live in a family but the family amounts to maybe you know 30 or 40 people because you have various uh, generations and you have the young and the old and uh, you have perhaps two bondmen that are you know, working off their sins. And uh, what that means is, is that in the early 1500s when Moore is writing, uh, the individual as a category for political theory hasn't emerged yet. That's gonna come in the enlightenment, right? So, Right now, we're still dealing with a political theory at the molecular level. When we get to the Enlightenment, we're gonna break the molecules down into the atomic level, okay? But for now, um, everything is built around families. Uh, there's an understanding of natural law, which we get from Thomas Aquinas, which he got from Stoic moral theory. The idea that there's a universal moral law accessible to reason that tells you that you're not supposed to exterminate your family and stuff, you know, which, you know, gives you the uh, ordinary understandings that uh, have emerged in, you know, as a kind of consensus among those that uh, have gone through the process of 
intellectual development, cultural development. Uh, so Thomas More anticipates sin. He uh, introduces a very interesting and important idea. Uh, the elder supervise the younger, and when some of the younger show real talent, here's something like Plato, um, they are nominated for special education and special jobs uh, as magistrates or as ambassadors, but if they are not imposed on the people. Instead, um, the magistrates bring the young person up, introduce them to the uh, people that are governed by his decisions, and uh, say, look, this young man has talent. We see that he has a good character. We re we'd like to release, release him from the work that's universal for everybody so that we can make him study, so that we can have him govern in the future, or so that we can send him as an ambassador someplace else. Then he says, do I have your approval? So in other words, what he's asking for here is the consent of the governed, which is a very interesting and very sophisticated idea. That's one of the few things in, in uh, Thomas More that I would be inclined to call modern and forward-looking. For the most part, um, Thomas More, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but he's a backward-looking thinker, right? Uh, his idea of the world is organized around feudalism and the sense of reciprocity between lord and serf. Unfortunately, uh, European economics has been deranged by a flow of money from the new world. And as a result, um, people are being driven off the land and uh, sheep are being given the land. That's the sheep that eat men. And uh, more, because remember, economics hasn't been invented yet, not in our sense. Adam Smith is 1776. So Moore doesn't have the idea of inflation. So he's looking around wondering why are all these desperate, hungry people flocking to cities like London where they get caught doing some kind of criminal thing out of desperation, and then I have to kill them. He said, I didn't sign on for this. This is outrageous, and we can't put up with this. So what Moore is trying to do is find out what the reason for this outbreak of larceny and outbreak of criminality is. And he says, you know what it has to be? Greed and avarice. Remember, he doesn't have the idea of inflation. He doesn't understand why prices have gone up. He just knows that back in grandpa's time, wheat cost one amount and now it costs twice as much or three times as much. And that can only be avarice because there's a natural price for wheat. Now, we don't believe there's a natural price for things anymore. We think it has to be supply and demand. But Moore's view is essentially medieval. It's the use value, not the exchange value. This is connected with the way Moore, Moore organizes the economy in utopia. It strikes some people as uh, weakly organized because it doesn't produce all that much. But the point is, Moore is not like us trying to maximize productivity. He's trying to maximize stability. Everybody has to work eight hours a day. Nobody's privileged. You actually can get by with six hours a day, but nobody's privileged. No one can avoid work, all right? Um, he says that's a big part, pride in uh, 
one station is a big part of what's wrong with the world he lives in, in, in London. And he says that sin of pride is connected to the avarice I see all around me. So what I wanted to do, want to make sure is that everyone wears their own mouse suit and you get one every two years and that way nobody wears any bling and nobody thinks they're better than anybody else because they're not, right? So he's fiercely egalitarian, right? But he allows for circumstances where people of special ability emerge who are the natural aristocrats, the natural leaders, but they're properly voted on and selected by the people that know them, saw them grow up. So this new idea that consent to the governed will be developed further in the Enlightenment, but it's a really good one, right? Uh, Thomas More is uh, trying to solve modern problems with medieval intellectual constructions. So it's not that people aren't avaricious in his time, it's just that people aren't any more greedy in Moore's time than they were two generations earlier. Greed is pretty much continuous. It's just that nobody was able to realize their greed in a static economy, or a, 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 a not quite static economy, but a very slowly changing economy. Once all that money flows in from the new world, economies begin to go into overdrive. Inflation comes in. Nobody knows what it is or how to control it. And so Thomas More brings out the toolkit that he has from the Middle Ages, right? The seven deadly sins. I can't believe how rapacious and proud we are. Look what we're doing to people that have no other choice. One way of thinking about More's utopia is that it's a giant co-educational monastery. <laughs> right. In other words, because they have to continue to reproduce, they allow that uh, they have a kind of a convergence of the convent and the monastery. Everybody works like they do in monasteries and they have a completely scheduled life like they do in monasteries and everybody eats together like they do in monasteries. The only difference is they reproduce rather than being celibate like they are supposed to in the mid medieval counterparts. And I mean, the homogeneity, the homogeneity of it, um, I don't know, as a kind of contemporary person, I found it kind of trying, or I always have, but uh, you gotta think about it. Um, as this, the island of Utopia has 54 cities, and all of them look exactly like each other. <laughs> so every city is like every other city. If you have some wanderlust, and you would like to, you know, go someplace else, knock yourself out. But once you get there, they're still going to make it work. <laughs> so you can't escape work. And what you're going to find out is that you're among strangers, but nice people, and uh, that everything is just like the way it was at home. So don't you think it's about time you got home? <laughs> right? Uh, and of course, everybody's wearing the same mouse suit, right? <laughs> waving, not their, their book of Chairman Mao, they're waving Utopia, right? And there's so many interesting things. Uh, the Utopians have. Um, I remember the line, they have very few priests, but all of them are holy, right? <laughs> Rather than the tremendous number of priests that Thomas More's time has, and almost none of them are holy. So he likes that. Both men and women can be priests, but they have to be really old. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> uh, he abolishes the use of gold and silver. Why? Well, because gold and silver are really handy for exchanging goods 
But the problem is, more is interested in exchanging goods. All the wheat that we produce in any given year goes to the grainer. And then uh, everybody goes there, or the ladies of the house go there once a week to get the amount of grain that they need. And nobody gives anybody anything. Instead, we put um, diamonds in the hands of babies because they're sparkly and they like them. And uh, we put uh, gold on the uh, bodies of bondsmen uh, to show that it's contemptible. Um, he doesn't care if that makes the economy slow down because he's not trying to produce or outproduce what we did last year. He says, I want to produce a, a stable relationship that we had last year and the year before that and the year before that. Everybody gets the chance to go out you know, to the country every two years or every three years to do their job and they they circle it around you know so it's a it's a very fair system of work it seems to me like what he's doing here is anticipating something that Locke will turn out to uh, to like it's a, a labor theory of value right so uh, maximum stability that's why utopia and king have been around uh, 1700 years since fabled King Utopas. And that's a sign that somebody's doing something right. Also notice the nice touches where they have things like uh, uh, the ambassador coming and the mother and child where the child says, who's this <laughs> yokel? And the mother said, silence child. I think that's the ambassador's fool. This has to have been the way Moore himself felt when he was sent on diplomatic missions to Holland. I mean, he had to get decked out in uh, 16th century bling bling. And he's thinking to himself, I am looking like an idiot. But he has to do this because this is part of the job. But he feels like the, the ambassador's fool. And, uh, you know, other nice points, uh, uh, you know, that show a real ready wit and uh, uh, a lively understanding as well as a, a beautiful writing style. 